Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 is where we find our text this morning. I want to read it straight away so that we can talk about it. So let's stand together, turn there if you would. Paul says this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we need you to come and do only that which you can do. Because, Father, no one has loved us like you have. No one has sought us like you have. No one cares enough for us like you do. So speak true words. Pierce us right to our hearts. Not to wound us, but to change us because you love us. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So I love problem solvers. I really do. I love the people that see a problem, they go attacking the problem, they identify what's going wrong, and they just tackle how to fix it. And I know that there are some of you that are tempted to read Paul in that way. You are tempted to read all the exhortations of uh, striving for unity and go, that's it. There's disunity. Disunity is the problem. Striving towards unity is the solution. Let's go tackle it. And that's cool, um, but we need, to, we need to get a few things out of the way. So there's a song that floats around around Christmas time. It's typically sung at big cantata events. I heard it at my, uh, at my eight-year-old's um, winter concert at his school. Um, it goes something like this. It's called, Let There Be Peace on Earth. And it says, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Let there be peace on earth, the peace that was meant to be with God as our father. Brothers, all are we. Let me walk with my brother in perfect harmony. Let peace begin with me. Let this be the moment now with every step I take. Let this be my solemn vow to take each moment and live each moment in peace eternally. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. And the tears fall and the applause happens and cherubs have sung it and it's beautiful and it's balderdash. It's absolute rank balderdash. And here's why. If you think that the source of disunity is that you haven't had enough people bearing down, white-knuckling, and striving to let peace begin with them, you don't understand the problem, and you most certainly don't understand the solution. 
Oh, let's be clear about this. I am the, pre- the reason that there is disunity and lack of peace. The solution, however, is not me figuring out, well, I just need to be less cantankerous. I mean, that is true. But why? Why am I so, so incredibly set on myself? And why are you so incredibly set on yourself? That's what Paul is trying to get at. And that's what he's trying to help the Philippians really understand. If there's going to be a resistance to the full-on frontal attack that's going to happen when you declare the name of Jesus, which is incredibly unpopular, and it's not unpopular because Jesus is offensive, though he is. It's unpopular because the kingdom of God, Jesus himself, requires us to give up the rights to ourselves. And bow our knee to him. And we could, and then we say to him, you can do whatever you want with me. It's that phrase I've been coming back to that Paul's joy, Paul's delight was at the expanse of the kingdom, even if it was at his own expense. Well, that's cool when you're talking about Paul in chains and in prison, because that sounds all heroic and stuff, like martyrdom or whatever. But what if, the, what if the expense of the expanse of the kingdom means that I have to give up my rights for the sake of the other? What if it means that I actually have to seek more for your good than my own? And not in a pressure-filled situation like I'm, I'm martyred or I'm in chains or I'm getting ready to, to face persecution, but what if that's just the normal way of life? that my call daily is to give up my rights. See, that beautiful choral anthem wants peace just as long as it means that everyone has agreed that peace is what we want and we're just going to all kumbaya the thing until we figure it out. And Paul says, no. See, this passage is much more descriptive before it's prescriptive. It's much more diagnostic before it is uh, rehabilitative. There are things that Paul is saying in this text that you have to understand. He's diagnosing our heart condition. All right? But it doesn't, we have to go to verse 3 to understand that, right? In verse 3, this diagnosis of the heart where Paul begins and he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, for as many different Bible translations as people are reading in this room, it's very possible that for as many different translations we have, there are different ways that 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 verse has been rendered out. And the reason is, is because those are rich, deep, complex words that don't necessarily package well into one particular English word. Now, Paul is, Paul's addressing the church, right? He's, he's addressing the church because he's turned his attention now from what he is facing in Rome to what they're facing in Philippi. Um, they are the church on the margins. I had one person who listened to my sermon last week remind me that my saying a church at the margins may not make total sense. Um, so 
to imagine the margins, it's the church on the periphery. It's the church on the outside. It's you're not in the center of power. You're not in the center of the action. You're not necessarily where all the influence is happening. You're out in the, you're out in the, in the suburbs. Or maybe you're out in the rural lands. You're not where all the action is. That's the church at the margins, and that's where um, the, the, the church in Philippi was. Remember, there wasn't even enough uh, Jewish people there in Philippi to have a proper synagogue. And so to even have a church to speak of, Paul would have probably been seeing the people on the outside of the town, like Lydia or the jailkeeper or others that were there on the outskirts of Philippi. And he's saying, in order to resist the persecution that is going to come, you have to be unified as a people, as the body. There are fractures happening. He's going to address those fractures explicitly and pastorally in chapters 3 and 4. But for now, he's getting in and saying that the way, uh, the way unity is achievable um, is not by everybody saying, well, we're just going to get along. That's not the way unity is achievable, right? That doesn't actually work. The solution is not to just get along, but to diagnose why we're, why we're prone to not get along in the first place. to the construction of the text, right? Verse 1 is, if you're in Christ, therefore these things are possible. So how do we get with these two words, selfish ambition or conceit? Let's start with the word selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is this this sense of of hyper-fighting. Okay, it's that sense of hyper fighting. Everybody's always looking for a fight. Everybody's always looking for an opportunity to be triggered and to fight. Okay, that's what that selfish ambition um, means. It only, it's a word that only occurs seven times in the New Testament, five of which are in Paul's letters. And it's already been used once here in Philippians. Paul used it back in verse 17 when he was talking about the motives of those that were preaching the gospel in order to shame Paul, right? Verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, right? That hyper fight, that need to always kind of uh, be going after people and going after things. That was that drive. It was that drive to be like, oh, look, Paul's in prison. Let's one-up him. Sounds like a great idea. Now, remember, um, they were not preaching a false gospel, right? Paul had very different words to those that were preaching a false gospel. In Galatians, after all, it's when Paul said, if anyone brings to you a gospel other than the one that I have preached to you, let that man be accursed. Indeed, if any man, if an angel from God, if, if any of the, if we come bringing a gospel that's not good news, it's not the gospel, let that man be accursed. That's not what he said here. He's like, well, your motives stink, but you're preaching Jesus and people, well, all right, cool. That's not exactly what it says, but it's close enough, right? So the word, the word is deeply rooted in selfishness. It's a self-centeredness that's motivated uh, by a desire for personal preeminence. All right, that's the first word. It's the second word where Paul goes from, uh, I believe as, as Southerners and others would say, Paul goes from preaching to meddling. You know this phrase? Okay. The second word, conceit, um, is really 
uh, best captured as a word that we don't use much in the English language anymore. Um, has anyone called you vainglorious? No? I got, I got to get new friends. <laughs> vainglory would be the, uh, vainglory would be the phrase. It's the word. Um, in her book, uh, Glittering Vices, uh, Dr. Rebecca DeYoung defines vainglory as the excessive and disordered desire for recognition and approval from others. The excessive and disordered desire for recognition and approval of others. Um, all of us, all of us have a deep desire to be noticed, to be acknowledged, to be told, yes, you're seen. Okay? That's not what we're talking about. Okay? We're not talking about the, this whole weird, um, oh, I'm nothing. I'm a worm. Don't see me. Don't acknowledge me. No, stop it. You're, you were made to be acknowledged, right? You were made with dignity. Um, you were made as the crown jewel of creation. God saw humanity. It was very good, not just good. So stop the whole thing of, oh, I'm nothing, I'm a worm. I'm No, okay? We're not talking about the desire to be noticed is wrong. What Paul's talking about is the disordered desire, this hyper-desire, this deeply-seated need to be um, recognized and approved of by others. Because as you know, it's not just, uh, well, okay, so it's like this, right? Uh, remember when you left home, you were running late, you didn't eat breakfast, okay? And so lunchtime comes around and you have a choice. You can watch your calories and eat well or not, <laughs> Right? Your desire for hunger is not what's wrong. The fact that you are ravenous, you now have a disordered desire for food. You're like, you know what? The triple cheeseburger with extra bacon does sound pretty divine right now. Actually, it kind of does. No, wait. Um, <laughs> it's that disordered desire. The disordered part is the problem. It's not just the desire, but it's what we do about it that ends up becoming the big issue. So... Um, all of us have this, this desire. The word, um, the word vainglorious means empty of glory, empty of glory. Um, and we all feel it. Um, we all feel the sting when that deep wound gets poked at. So say, for example, say, for example, that you are a, uh, you're a stay-at-home mom, which I know that many of you, many of you are, right? Um, the labors that you do, the things that you do to, to, to keep your house to keep your children uh, mostly clothed and mostly fed. I say mostly because they take clothing off at weird times. Uh, so I've learned. But uh, um, mostly your work is invisible. And, and if, if young kids are involved, um, often your work is undone as quickly as you finished it um, because kids. Um, and then someone asks you this question. Now listen to the way I'm asking the question. Do you work or do you just stay at home with the kids? 
Ouch. Ouch. But where? Um, where does a rightly ordered desire to be seen and affirmed and acknowledged go from healthy to disordered? Okay? And this is where Dr. DeYoung quotes from another author, William, Elon, uh, William Ian Miller, um, when he discusses the flattery of people. And this is what he says. The flattery of people is narcotic and addicting. It preys on two inescapable desires. They're desperate and inescapable desires to be thought well of by others and to think well of ourselves. All of us have the desire deeply woven to be thought well of by others and to think well of ourselves. We desire and need approbation so badly that we seem more than willing to accept counterfeit coinage as if it was real. Here's the great way um, to tell the difference between vainglory and pride. Okay? Pride is one of the roots of all evil. Here's the way to tell the difference between vainglory and pride. Pride wants to be number one. The vainglorious just want to be recognized. Okay? So, if you had a chance to have some outstanding quality, some amazing gift, which would remain hidden, no one would know you had it. No one would know that was a part of you. The prideful would take it because it would help them be number one. The vainglorious would pass on it because no one would know that it was yours. Does that make sense? Because after all, how good would it be to have this great thing but never get recognized for it? So, to be locked in a pattern of vainglory is to neglect questions such as how much do these things really matter? To what lengths should we go to impress? Or maybe whose approval matters most and why? Okay? So, back to the food analogy. If you are really hungry, you know full well that, that a fast food chain does not care about the quality of their food. They care about volume and quantity. They want to sell as much as they can, as quick as they can, with as little product loss as they can in order to maximize profits. Okay? You know, your brain knows it's not real food. Darn it all, those empty calories are delicious, though. And you know that when you are stomping and treading and trotting over and around people to get their approval, you don't really care about what they think of you. You just have a gaping need in your own heart that needs to be filled, and anything will do as long as it staves the itch temporarily. Now, you combine vainglorious with hyper-fighting, selfish ambition, conceit, a hyper-fighting, a hyper-fighting vainglorious person 
You put that person in a room and you can sing, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me all you want and it's not going to happen. It's the type of person that needs to be noticed but will actively pursue that notice, that need to be right, that need to be at the center and the inability to admit that they themselves might be the failure at all cost. And, and look, do you see that? This is, this is what we have to discover in our own hearts. This is what is operating at the core of Every single person is this disordered desire to have needs met in ways that you were never designed to have your needs met, right? This is what's operating in the core of our relationships. What's operating is one of two things, either your need or the gospel, okay? Those are your two choices. That's it. You're either operating with a sense of, I will have my needs met at all costs, whether they're relational, whether they're material, whether they're personal, whatever those needs are, you're either operating at a sense of, I will get my needs from this other person, or I've gotten my needs met from Jesus. There is no other middle ground. But it's the gospel. It's, it's, it's what the gospel is what enables. It's this announcement, this good news that enables us to see uh, dignity worth fighting for in ourselves and dignity worth fighting for in the other person. And all that is governed by God's revealed truth in scripture and incarnate truth in Jesus. But when we're caught up in selfish ambition and vain glory, uh, we have blinders on. We can't see the needs of anyone else because our needs rule the day. And we can't fathom anyone else getting their needs met because what was going to happen if they eat and they get their fill is any going to be left over for me do you see it when you feel painful lack you just start using people So whether it's fear that drives us to need to be in control or need to be right or need to be needed or need to be wanted or need to be respected or need to be noticed or need to be cherished, whatever your need is, it can show up in any number of ways on the spectrum of painful places of lack that seemingly force us to act in ways that seem like they're solving the problem, but in reality, they're not. They're making things worse, not better. Do you know how people treat needy people? They'll help you a little bit. But once they figure out that the need isn't going away, you start getting lonelier and lonelier and lonelier and needier and needier and needier. Do you see the pattern? So Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Well, guess what? This is not a physician heal thyself. The recognition of all of this is that you cannot do this apart from something intervening from the outside in to change you. You understand, by the way, that this is why... Um, 
when you're dealing with people on a hierarchy of need, when you're dealing with people that are in acute pain, you can have a conversation with them about spiritual things, maybe, but really deal with the pain first. Get the pain out of the way and then have the deeper conversation. When you have an addict going through withdrawal, maybe that's not the best time to talk to them about their life choices. They need the pain to stop first. Then you can talk to them about the bigger stuff. The reason that there's strife and disunity is first and foremost because I'm in the room and you are too. So how do we deal with that? How do we so easily fall prey to the wanting, uh, to wanting to garner glory for ourselves. I think in, far, in, in, in part it's because we feel convinced deep down that we're never going to be good enough to shine without some artificial help. You want glory and you're afraid you'll never get it. And so you're willing to do whatever you can to manufacture it. I mean, look, I've told you this before, and I'll say it again. I, I wonder, am I enough? Am I enough of a husband for Jen? Am I enough of a dad to my kids? Am I enough of a pastor for you? Am I enough of a child of God? Do you see? That's the problem. I look at myself, and I see myself, and I know the answer to the question. I'm not enough. I'm not enough of a husband. I'm not enough of a dad. I'm not enough of a pastor. That's the point. This upside down nature of the gospel actually forces you to get to a point where you're like, I don't have it. I'm not enough. And to be okay with that and to receive what only you can get from Jesus to say, you're right, you're not, but I am and I give you mine. That's a tough spot because we don't like that. Robs us of our individualism. So how do we go from being glory-starved to being glory-satisfied? That's the cure, right? Paul's alluded at it already. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, right there in verse 1. The cure for our heart. Because we... We can't be genuinely unified with one another when we need to either use each other as our prop or run from one another because we might actually find out that we've been playing the fool the whole time. When you either want to use people to prop you up or you run from people because they might actually get to know the real you, the real you that you've worked so hard to put wigs and makeup on to pretend like you've got it all together when you don't, and if someone gets too close, they may actually figure it out. What do you do then? Well, our, the, the cure can't be found in what we do, but what Christ has done. Paul begins this in, in, in verse 1. If there. And this is not what he's saying. Like He's not saying um, it, these are optional things that come to the elite. He's saying that these are things that come because you are adopted by the Father through the work of the Son, by the power of the Spirit. 
All right, it's remarkably Trinitarian language. Um, in fact, this this phrase that Paul uses um, is one of my favorite benedictions to use in Second Corinthians. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forevermore. That benediction, that that language, is what Paul uses here. This abundant joy and unity of the Trinity seems to be what Paul is evoking here. The hope of the gospel, the cure of our glory starvation is this. Despite our glory-hounding, hyper-fighting, self-satisfaction-seeking selves, God has encouraged us, comforted, and loved us, and established partnership with us by becoming one with us. And because God has done that, look at the last two words of verse 1. The result of that partnership then, that union, is that we have affection and we have sympathy. These are results. These are because statements. These are because these things are true. Look at what God has done. Affection is that word that we heard first in chapter 1, verse 8, that deep in the gut compassion, that from the bowels, that Matthew 9, Jesus looked upon the people and he had compassion in his gut for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And the second word, alongside of the Trinity's affection for us is a word that the ESV renders as sympathy, but might be better translated as God's overflowing mercies. Do you see this? God doesn't chastise your desire to be seen, to be noticed, to be filled, to be comforted, to be made much of. In fact, it's, in the, it's going to be in the next paragraph that we're going to look at starting next week that, that Paul's going to spend time bringing us to the very heart of the good news of our rescue and redemption of the work of Christ. It's because we have received this love, because we have the Spirit at work in us, because we have the smile of our Father that we can have our hearts turned inside out by the gospel. We can have our hearts melted. We can have our desires Filled, not just put away, but filled. Because, friends, look, the problem is not that your desire is to be hungry and your desire is to be filled. You were made that way. That's not a, that's not a defect. It's not a result of the fall. The fact that you were made with desire is not a result of the fall. What we do with that desire is a result of the fall. You were made to be filled. The glory that we were made for is a glory that is gained through our union and communion with our Father who made us out of Trinitarian overflow and delight. Desire becomes disordered when the seeking of glory, uh, when seeking of glory is motivated by a starvation of glory. And it results in selfishness and self-seeking and self-serving. Paul says for us to have, for us to complete his joy, Paul says for us to complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind in verse two. And then in verse four, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, how do you do this, right? That's always the question we get. How do you do this in practical terms? So I don't want to get overly prescriptive because it's your life, but let me give you a couple things. Think about, think about the interactions that you have with people on a day-to-day basis. And I'm not talking about the, the incidental reactions that you have with people that you don't know. I'm talking about the interactions that you have with people that you do know. 
How many times do you reach out to someone because you are genuinely interested in what is going on with them and you have no, uh, you have nothing to share about your own life? Does that make sense? Like you're not using your reaching out to them as a side, as a, as a side door into, but let me really tell you about what's going on with me. Right? How many people do you have that you go, I want to really just receive. I want to know. I want to hear. And then if it bubbles up in you, but wait, I can't do that because I really want them to know what's going on in me. Oh, there it is. Right? The need to be seen, the need to be noticed, the need to be made much of. Right? So think about it. The next time that you call or text someone or whatever, just be interested in them. Be interested in them, how you can pray for them, what's going on, what's bringing them joy. People don't do that for me. Again, see the first point. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's just patiently loving the hard to love around you because you have a love that will not let you go in Jesus. But it's exhausting. Well, Petunia, so are you. See, if you try going to grab glory for yourself, you become irrelevant. If you try and make much of yourself, you become less. But if you risk, if you go to the place of your deepest fear that you're nothing, <laughs> that you're welcomed at the foot of the cross. It's only when you realize that you have no glory, that you have no righteousness, that you deserve to be cast off, that you're going to find your greatest relief. And that's hard because we want to still cling to the worthless treasures that could be ours. When you find yourself in that place, you find the welcoming embrace of Jesus because Jesus is the one who became the ignored nobody on the cross for you. He lived and died so that you would receive the crown of glory and righteousness that was his and he freely gives it to you. To give up on a life that's been run and ruled by vainglory is to really take up a life of freedom. It's an upside-down world. Seeking glory leads to emptying grasping. It's only when you don't seek it that you find your greatest joy in being filled with it. Because it's not yours to grab. It's only yours to receive. This is the life that can provide the security and the satisfaction of being known and loved by the one whose approval we can't live without. It's this that produces the unity in the church because we aren't using people as fuel for our own appetites, but we're unleashing our satisfaction that we have in Christ for the good of people around us. I don't know about you, but that type of love sounds a, a lot more full and free than whatever it is that I try and typically grab for. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me is a sweet idea, but it misses the point. Peace on earth has begun with Jesus and it's only when we're conquered by him and find our satisfaction fully in him that peace can begin because we don't need people anymore. We get to love them out of the overflow of the love that we've been shown by Jesus.